Well, thank you all for being here today and joining with us as we worship and then also study God's word and as Ray brought up in his prayer that worship continues through the reading and the teaching of the scriptures and it's not just um, something that we do when we sing. So we will continue to worship our Lord and Savior as we read his word and as we teach and study it. So turn with me to the book of Colossians and we're going to start back at verse 11. That's the verse that we ended on last week. There's a few things that I want to recap with you before we continue into the other verses. So make your way to Colossians chapter 3 and we're going to start with verse 11 and I'll read through verse 17. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's go to the word, uh, go to the Lord one more time uh, in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word and that it is the truth that we cling to in times of adversity, Lord, um, no matter what we're going through, we know that there is help found in your holy word. And I ask, Lord, that you would just meet us in those needs right now that many of us have. Uh, we have very real physical needs. Uh, we ask that you minister to those today through this time of study and through prayer. And God, we pray that you minister uh, healing into our spiritual needs. God, that you would awaken us for just understanding of, of who you are and what you have done for us. We pray for that for those who may not know you through a personal relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. And we just ask, God, that your Holy Spirit move in the hearts to draw those who um, may not have a relationship with you to that saving knowledge of who you are and what you have done. And God, just grant us understanding. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you've been here for the past couple of Sundays, we've been in chapter three. And chapter three has been more of the practical application of what our life in Christ should look like now that we have been born again into a saving relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, his Son. And we've been talking about what a Christ-centered life should look like, that it will look different than the life that we lived before, which was a self-centered life, a life that was more devoted to a self-kind of love rather than loving God first and allowing that to be the thing that flowed out of our lives and seeing that in various ways, various characteristics that should be manifested in us. We were told last Sunday by Paul that we are to put to death the sin that once ruled us and 
then we are given a list of all these types of sins that we were once enslaved to and understanding it in that sense. And the sins that were listed there first for us were these sensual types of sins. It could be a perverted or corrupted kind of love, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. These were patterns of who we once were, patterns of the old life that marked us in a sense. And then in verse six, Paul says that on account of these, these sins in your life, the wrath of God is coming. And we understand that through scripture that sin is deserving of God's wrath and his punishment. In fact, those of us who are without Christ, apart from him in a saving relationship, the wrath of God is headed towards us. It's why we need a savior, why we need to cry out for a savior. We need, we need to understand that we were lost and to understand we are lost recognizes that we need to be found. And hopefully that's what is for, for all of us here. And then the other list of sins that Paul describes a little bit later on in that uh, same passage that we read last week are the sins that are typically spoken, meaning the words that come out of our mouths. The wounds we can inflict on others with our words is sin. When we're wounding people with our words, sinning with our mouths, these we need to put away is what Paul says. Similar to the sensual sins, putting to death, this is just another way of describing, just ridding ourselves radically of that sin. And he says, put these things away. Now that we are believers in Jesus Christ, we put off the old self, and now we are to put on something in place of that, and that is the new self. We become part of Christ's body, the church, when we are saved, and Christ now becomes our everything. He is the one whom we live for. He is in us, and he indwells the life of every believer, and so we should not be looking at our differences anymore of, you know, who we are in in terms of our social standing or who that person is in terms of their, their race or who that person is in terms of their culture. Now we are all made one in Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come in the same way. It is by the same grace, it is by the same faith that we are saved. We are made children by Christ's redeeming sacrifice. John chapter one, verse 11 through 13. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Paul ends verse 11 with, but Christ is all and in all. It is his sufficiency again. How many times have we looked at that? Christ is sufficient. He is sufficient. Christ is everything, and if you are in him, and he in you, just as Paul says, but Christ is all and in all, And if he's in you, then you, along with your brothers and sisters in Christ here, again, regardless of where we stand socially, uh, racially, cultural backgrounds, we are all one in Christ. And so you have the same wardrobe now, in a sense. You know, you've come in by faith, and now you're all in this together, and we need to now put on what it is to be in Christ. And since verse 10 
Just to look back a little bit, it tells us to put on the new self, and that new self is after the image of our Savior, then we need to evaluate if we are putting on the right clothes. All right? Look then with me at verse 12 once again. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It is because that you have been united into the family of God that you are to put on then, is what Paul is saying. Having put to death the life, lived in a pattern of sin and setting it aside because you are his now and this is what you put on instead. Here is what the new life should look like in some very practical ways, how it's expressed within the believer's life. But let me first back up here and just talk a little bit about what Paul says when he says, as God's chosen ones, because he says, put on then, and then there's another qualifier, as God's chosen ones. What is it to be chosen of God? Chosen is those who are saved by his grace, and it's not because of things that we have done. It is not by any work that we could do, but because of what he has already done by giving eternal life to undeserving sinners like me and like you, by sending his son, his perfect gift, as the atonement for our sins, it of all of him and none of us. We say by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'm reading a book by A.W. Pink called The Attributes of God, and he describes the saving grace of God this way. Divine grace is the sovereign and saving favor of God exercised in the saving bestowment of his blessings upon those who have no merit in them and for which no compensation is demanded from them. I think that's a good paraphrase of what Paul writes in Romans eleven six 6 when he says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Salvation is God's work. But know also that he will not refuse anyone who comes to him empty-handed and pleads for his mercy. We hold to God's sovereign election or choosing those whom he saves while not neglecting man's responsibility. Romans 11, or sorry, John, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So put on then, as God's chosen ones, another qualifier here, as a chosen one, you are called holy and beloved. And this is what we put on as those who are forgiven. As holy, holy means to be separated from, to be called and separated apart. That's who we are in Christ. And then as those beloved. And when someone is called the beloved of God, this is just reserved title for those who are believers or descriptor of what it is to be in Christ. You are beloved of God. And it describes that um, God, as our father, he has made us his child and he only loves his children like that. We have a special love for our children, right? God has that beloved love for us. It is a special, unique love for those who are his chosen, his his children. And so we are to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, and these are the characteristics or attributes that we are to have and that we are to put on. Compassionate hearts, 
kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Back in verse 5, Paul was talking about our sin there, and he says that we are to put it to death, and now here in verse 12, we're to put on these godly attributes. So if we've put off this old self and we're putting on the new self, this is what we should be covered in now, almost like cloaked within these attributes. We want our spiritual lives to show outwardly the transformation that has taken place on the inside that others might see these things working out within us. And verse 12 is just another list, but this is a good one. This is not the the sinful things that once marked us, but now these are the things that we should be walking in the pattern of. One who is living a life in Christ should desire to have these things. We should view it similarly to the things that we want to put to death and lay aside, and that this is not an exhaustive list, meaning you, you do all of these, but it encompasses a lot of things that God works out within us in a life lived after him. So the first thing, if we really come to this list and evaluate ourselves against it, then we have to ask ourselves the first thing, do we have a compassionate heart? Is that something that marks our lives? So I've, just like I did with the sins and the, the list that we read through last week, we're gonna do this with the list of these good godly attributes within us. So a compassionate heart, the definition of that um, is this is a character trait that is marked by the new man or woman. It's guided from within because it says compassionate heart, something that comes from within. Just like our words, acts of kindness should stem from a heart that is Christ-centered. The word compassion, the compassionate heart, it can mean pity, mercy, or sympathy. How do we respond to those who are downtrodden, those who are in need, the sick, the injured, the elderly, the orphans, in widows do we have a compassionate heart towards them and the next one is kindness are you kind and that is very closely related to compassion and the greek term here refers to the grace that pervades the whole person mellowing what might be harsh within us when jesus said in matthew 11:30 that his yoke is easy it is a term to describe that it is not harsh it is not hard to bear concerned about others good above your own are you kind are you humble this is a hard one humbleness among the culture of Jesus and Paul's time the word humble had a negative connotation in fact among the Greek culture it was viewed as an insult it was a weakness if you were somebody considered humble when Christianity came along those who are in Christ, this began to be used as a virtue to describe the one who is in Christ, an elevated virtue. It is the antidote to self-love that seeks after its own agenda consistently over that of others. It is the opposite of that. It seeks out the good for others over looking out for good for yourself. So are you humble? Are you meek? This is also translated as gentleness. This is not weakness, not to be misunderstood, just because it rhymes with meek, is, it's not weak. But it's a strength that is disciplined and controlled by its master. It's used to describe a bridled horse, a horse that is under control. The Christian is not weak, but they are submitted to God as their master. 
Are you patient? Never responds in anger despite the foolishness of those around you, the opposite of resentment and revenge. If it were not for God's patience with us, no one would be saved. Our Lord and Savior is patient, long-suffering with us. Are you patient? Are you willing to bear others' shortcomings as they bear yours? And this is to hold up under the weight others may put upon you and not let it cause a sinful response in retaliation. It's very closely related to patience. To hold up under the weight others may put upon you. Are you quick to forgive? Forgiveness is only possible because of his forgiveness towards us. The Greek word for forgiveness is karazomenai, and it literally means to be gracious. So we are to be forgiving of others as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Remember two Sundays back when we talked about our orientation to the things that are above, that we look to Jesus who is the one who is able to help us in our weaknesses. We, we look to the one who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is the one who enables and strengthens this Christ, the Christian life within us and fosters the Christian growth within us. And when we have this orientation to Jesus in such a way, then it, would def- it should define the way we extend those graces to each other or these characteristics. So I'll talk about this as we go through more of this passage of Scripture is that when we understand the vertical, we'll better get right the horizontal. When we look to the one who enables us, the one who extended his mercy and grace towards us, that should then determine the degree by which we give it to others. So when we think about his forgiveness and the magnitude of that forgiveness, that he would send his one and only son to die on the cross for our sins, that's how much he loved us, that's the magnitude of his forgiveness, then should we not then extend that same forgiveness to others because what he has given to us. Let's go to verse 14 now. And above, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I take this to mean that key, the key to all of these other attributes is love. Because Paul says it's above all of these things. Like it sits on top of these, it envelops it, it encompasses it all, it holds all of these other attributes together. But it's not just any type of love that we should think of here, but this is the Greek word agape. And there's four or five different uh, ways that the Greeks or different definitions of love that the Greeks have. And so since this was written in Greek, just to see love, we have to see what Greek word is behind it. And this agape type of love is a love that overcomes. It's a love that loves in spite of. So no matter what others may do to offend us, we, then, we love them anyway. That's the way it is in the body of Christ as believers. That agape love should be extended towards others. And that's what holds all these other godly characteristics together. Go to Galatians 5 with me. Because we see some interesting parallels. It's it's amazing how, how consistent Scripture is. <laughs> Paul has this throughout his letters, and we know that is the Spirit inspiring Paul to be consistent in his message, and so we don't find any, any error in the Word. So when Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, you're going to see a lot of similarity to what we're reading 
this morning. Galatians 5, 22 through 24, Paul writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. One of the interesting things about that passage is the fruit of the Spirit is the use of the word fruit is not plural. I don't know if you you caught it there, but when he says the fruit of the Spirit of love, notice he didn't say the fruits of the Spirit, but yet he goes on to list all of these things that come afterwards. And so why didn't he just say fruits of the Spirit? And most believe here, most commentators think that it is because the fruit is love. And it is that characteristic from which all the others flow. And that would line up with what Paul is saying to the Colossian believers, what we're reading this morning, that all these traits that you should now be exhibiting in your life as one who is a child of God is bound together in this love. And you really think about it, uh, you can't be kind unless you have in your heart love towards someone, that agape kind of love. You know, we can't show compassion unless you have this love. Another thing I think we need to understand about this love that holds everything together is it needs to be properly ordered. ordered. I didn't get that out quite right. An appropriately ordered love is another part of that key. Remember back to the orientation part, and I told you we we're going to be looking at this orientation of the vertical versus the horizontal and how this up and down should dictate what goes out. In Matthew 22, 35 through 40, Matthew 22, verse 35. This is the the scribes trying to trip up Jesus and try to get him to say something that they could um, use to accuse him later on. But Matthew 22, verse 35, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Did you see the order there? Love the Lord your God. First and foremost, we need to love him. And then the love is enabled to flow out from us towards others. And it helps me to think of it this way because if I'm truly loving someone in a biblical way as I should, as all of us should, then naturally I'm going to want to exhibit those things towards them. I want to be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, long-suffering, bearing one another's burdens, and above all, loving them. And all those others stem from that. Loving rightly, though, involves putting the perverted, sensual type of love that we talked about last week, involves putting that to death. Because you need to put that away before you can put this on, is what Paul is saying. Remember the sins that Paul listed there last week that were more sensual in nature. Many of them would be these types of perverted loves, the lust of the heart and the eyes, and not a love that will lead you to any of these godly characteristics. And perverted love, though, seems to be the love that is promoted today so strongly in the world around us. And you hear the slogan, love is love, and that really grates on me. 
I'm going to stand on a soapbox for just a little bit <laughs> because the love they are promoting is not the one that leads to eternal life, but it's the one rather that leads to sin and death. And that's what we should be putting to death is this perverted type of love. You remember I, I talked about the agape love just being one of the Greek words that they used to describe love. The other one is called eros love. And eros was that Greek god that we know as Cupid. And that's the erotic kind of love. That's where the word erotic comes from. And that is the love that is promoted, it seems, above all other kinds of love. And in the name of tolerance, our world today has corrupted our idea of love. And I think we need to get back to a biblical, agape, Christ-centered love. And we can only act in that kind of love through a relationship with God. In 1 John 4, 19 through 21, we love because what? He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You see the vertical and then the horizontal. We can only love our brother if we are loving God first. And we can only love because he first loved us. So I'll get off my soapbox. Um, We'll move on. (laughs) What godly love does is it brings everything together in perfect harmony. And because I have a musician's background, you know, harmony is kind of easy for me to understand. It's a musical term that describes all the notes being sung precisely such that it makes beautiful music. And one wrong note, and it doesn't matter that the others are getting it right, that sour note is the thing that everybody else is focusing on. And Paul listed earlier for us, and in our study last week, these ungodly things that can proceed from our mouths. You know, most of the sins listed there had to do with our words and how we speak to one another. And this is the challenge to the body of Christ, is that love in perfect harmony, the people around us, those outside looking in, should, should hear beautiful harmonious music but you see someone in the body that is lashing out with their words and speaking unkind things and flying off the handle in anger at others and speaking foul words to one another that harmony is going to be all interrupted I think that's why Paul continually in his letters he comes with this church discipline for us so that we understand individually how do we operate in the body and what we are to put on so that the music to the outside world within the body of Christ, it, it's, it's beautiful. It's something that they want, that they, they would desire to have themselves. Let us move on to verse 15 now. <laughs> and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Another practical application to our life in Christ is to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So we put on all these things, these godly characteristics, and then let the peace of Christ rule. And I see this as not allowing for any other rival to rule our hearts because there's a lot of things that can come in um, and try to take authority within our lives, try to usurp God's rightful place on his throne in our hearts and allow other things to come in. And the disruptors to peace in our lives are things like anger, and including peace with others, anger, we, malice, 
um, anxiety and worry can take over the rule of our hearts such that it becomes a sinful thing for us, but rather we are to let his peace rule our hearts. And this peace is much like the love that we talked about, that if it is truly of God, then it is a peace that will overcome that in spite of the opposing forces that come against this peace, like stress, like anxiety, or anger, or depression, his peace will prevail. It will overcome those things if it is ruling in our hearts. And when you view this in context, seems to apply that the peace we maintain, or this is describing the peace we maintain or we hold with others. So our interactions, that horizontal with each other, is it marked by peace? Just like we love because, we first, because he first loved us, so we also have peace with others because he has made peace with us. In Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the vertical. Peace with God so that we can, in turn, extend peace to others. Peace between us and the Father such that we no longer are under his wrath for our sin but forgiven and accepted as his child and have become one within the body of Christ. And if we look at that vertical to determine what the horizontal looks like, how much should we be at peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ when we contemplate the magnitude of the peace that he has given us through relationship with Jesus. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. As one body in Christ, we share in this peace with one another, a common unity that is bound together in love by his peace. And is it that's the spirit of God that enables that? The spirit of God is the bond of peace. We had done a study back, uh, I don't know, it's been several months ago, we started in Ephesians chapter four. We talked about church unity there. And Paul writes Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Sounds familiar, right? Verse three of Ephesians four, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And Paul, in his description of bond of peace, is using a medical term that is the ligaments of the body, that we are ligamented together in peace by his spirit. He holds it all together. It's strengthened by him. And then we cap it off with thanks. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called one body, and be thankful. Grateful hearts show the heart's attitude perhaps better than anything. In place of one who grumbles or gripes or uses coarse talk in their everyday life, um, it's hard to find someone like that that will give thanks. But rather than those things, if we are really putting on these attributes of God, then we are going to give thanks. That should be the natural outflowing of a believer. First Thessalonians five sixteen and 18, Paul says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. you know, usually we think of thankfulness as something that is determined by our immediate circumstances, but Paul here shows that it is a grace within us to be cultivated, to be grown, and we are responsible for being thankful. It's studying for this, this teaching just 
reminded me of how often I'm, I'm negative, especially when I go to work. <laughs> you know, the, the grind of everyday life sometimes causes to sink into these unthankful type of attitudes, but there's always reason to be thankful, especially when we consider this, right? How much have we been given? How thankful we should be. So let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in your hearts to God. And I was visiting with Ray this morning and he was uh, telling me that he really wanted to teach this verse. So you can come back to it if you like, Ray. But <laughs> Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Well, not only are we to let peace rule in our hearts, but Paul adds on the word of Christ. Christ brought the revelation of his scripture to us. He was the fulfillment of all the prophecies. He is the establishment of the new covenant with us through the gospel. And this is really referring to scripture when we say let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It is all of him. This is, this is his word, his truth that should abide and take presence within our lives or take up residence, that his word dwell in us richly. And in order to affect the teaching and admonishing and the worship part of this that we'll talk about in just a moment, we need to let his word dwell. And it's not just his word as an invited guest that every once in a while we let that word take up residence within us, but no, this is dwelling within us. This is living. This is something that is making its home within us, and it's welcomed there to inhabit us and permeate our being and who we are. And then to not just dwell, but to dwell so richly that we are so immersed in his word that we can readily call it up to remembrance uh, fitting for the occasion that we find ourselves in. And this can only become our lives when we are diligent to read it and to study it and to live out his word. In Psalm 119.11, and those of you who are participating in the class this evening, you can take note of these verses because we'll come back to them again, but Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We use his word as protection against the sin that, that so often tempts us and wants to draw us into its death snares. In Romans ten seventeen, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Our faith comes from hearing his word. In 2 Timothy two fifteen, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So we are responsible in how we handle his word. We let it dwell there. We let it abide and grow within us richly. But how do we handle it? We need to devote study to it. And then what flows forth should then be what Paul describes next. And there is both a positive and a negative result, but both are necessary. So come back with me and read that, that we let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we use his word to teach one another and that is a positive thing for us. We don't just grab the latest, greatest Christian book off the bookshelf and say, I'm gonna teach this to you. I mean, there are some good books that are written out there, 
but the one we need is his word. That's what's all sufficient to us in our life and in our Christian walk. We want to be faithful to teach it, everything that the scripture has for us because it is his word. The gospel is the great news to us and that is an encouraging and a positive thing and that's what we want to teach to others. But then there's that admonishing side that Paul speaks of and some describe that as kind of the negative connotation of, of having his word within us is that we can teach with it, but we also admonish with it. But I really don't even see admonishing as a negative thing. I think it's positive because it must take place within the lives of believers because admonishing is warning. It's warning of the consequences of sin and how it destroys and tears apart the body. The New Testament includes so many of Paul's letters to the early churches that are full not only of his teaching and love for the church, but because he does love the church so much and he views the church as the body and the bride of Christ, he does not shy away from admonishing sin. In the world outside, though, they accuse the church of being judgmental and how dare we call attention to someone's sin. And that's probably because most of what they see Um, is those who proclaim to be Christians and then live for the most part like they do and then how dare you call attention to my sin when you're doing the same sin. So the the obligation, the responsibility isn't us to live a Christ-like life to what Jesus would say, take out the two by four from your own eye so that you can remove the speck from your brother's eye. So it requires a lot of introspection and teaching and admonishing ourselves so that we then can admonish others. Now, I believe this is more for the church within. Paul uses broad sweeps that admonish the sins of those in the world, but when it comes to the specifics, the one he admonishes more directly are those within the church. None of us like to have attention called to our sin, and the church has steered away from any manner of church discipline, but with God's word, we use it as a tool to admonish. And it is done in all wisdom, is what Paul says. That's rightly acting on the knowledge of God's word, knowing when it's necessary to call attention to sin because we want to protect Christ's bride. We want to protect the church. I know if I, I sent Jody off somewhere on her own and she was out of town and she began to get harassed by, by men in a parking lot at Walmart and nobody rushes to her defense and I find out about it, then you and I are going to have issues. And shouldn't this be the same way with Christ's bride, the church? Should we not want to defend his bride when sin comes in and when it's recognized within? We use his word to admonish. An example of that, and Paul doing this within the church, and we're going to uh, go to this passage of scripture, and then we're going to find ourselves there next week because we're going to share in the Lord's Supper together. But Paul is talking about the seriousness and the somberness of the Lord's Supper and how we do so in a reverent way. But then he's seeing within the body those who are just acting of their own accord and taking food that you know they shouldn't. They're hogging it all up, and he sees within the, in the body and he corrects it. He comes to its defense. In 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 27, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged 
but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. We're gonna hold our place there for next week if you want to, but we see just this example of Paul admonishing to the church and saying this, this is the body of Christ. We don't do anything that would, would defile it and we're going to protect that and so we must admonish. And then having the word of Christ dwell in us ritually should also be seen in how we worship. Our expressions from the heart done in a corporate way. I would even say that this is engaging the emotions that are rightly guided by the mind that is saturated by his truth. Not a chaotic but an informed type of worship. We'll see that here in just a moment, how Paul describes the type of worship that goes on. The early church put music to psalms and sang God's word. And I'm very thankful that our worship team is very careful in the selections of songs that they bring to us as a congregation, that the things that we are singing are in alignment with God's word, with his truth to us, and not just trying to manipulate or victimize and get us worked up emotionally so that that we can then respond to something. That's not what music should be doing for us. But we should be guided by the intellect, the emotions can follow, and and they should, I believe, in their expression of our gratitude towards God. Um, You know, I wish I could say that I was more careful with this when I was a worship leader at a church, but I very seldom engaged the pastor beforehand to see if the music was going to link together with the message. I just want to say how thankful I am for those that are are here leading us in worship, Stephen and Carissa, and uh, just what they, they choose to sing. The spiritual songs that Paul writes of are said by commentators to be an emphasis that was more based on testimony, which is expressing what God has done for us. Uh, We see an example in Revelation where a song is being sung in Revelations 5, 9 through 10. It says, and they sing a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, and from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The singing of a song that is just declaring the testimonies of God, the greatness of him, and that's what we believe the spiritual songs are that Paul is describing for us here. And then again, he brings up thankfulness, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. King James Version translate the word here, thankfulness, as grace. And commentators are divided over which is the right use of the word. Uh, the Greek word here is charitai, and that's the word that we use for charity today, but it would encompass uh, both, as one commentator states, no matter what you choose to translate this word as. He says, believers sing out of thankfulness for God's grace. I didn't think taking one use of the word or the other is going to lead us down any doctrinal error path, um, but it's just a way to combine the two translations. With thankfulness in your hearts to God, and Paul puts the focus back in, in your hearts. This directs our attention to what is going on in the heart will produce the type of thankfulness that you have. Last week we looked at how the way we speak is guided by the heart. And we can certainly declare the truths of God with our voices. We can fool a lot of people out there um, just uniting our voices in song. But for each individual, it comes down to what is in our heart, 
Are we truly grateful for all that God has done for us? Singing is to be directed to God as praise and worship offered to him for his pleasure and his glory. That's the first and foremost aspect of our praise and worship. But that it is edifying to us, encouraging us as believers is, is the byproduct of that main purpose of why we sing songs and why we, we direct our, our songs of praise and worship towards him to glorify God and to please him. In verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And starting from verse one of chapter three of this chapter, we have been looking at all of these practical applications of our Christian life, how what has happened spiritually within us by the working of his grace that should be seen in expressions outwardly. And Paul seems to be closing out a thought here we're going to move into more of a new section of chapter 3, probably week after next, and that might be, be for Ray. But what people see in you and what people hear from you matters. You are a representative of Christ. You're a representative of Christ in your home. You're a representative of Christ in your church, in your workplace, in stores that you go to. You're a representative of Christ alone Wherever you are, whether it's in groups of people or whether it's isolated, alone at your house, what do you do and say that is glorifying to God? In his name means you are doing it as his representative. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then another opportunity for Paul to show that we need to have thankfulness. And he says, give thanks to God the Father through him, through Christ Jesus. It reminds us again just to have a grateful heart. We don't do it out of reluctance or religious duty, but led by a heart that is full of thanks for all that he has done for us. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for helping us in our understanding of your word today. I pray that it is your Holy Spirit that is teaching us and reminding us, God, of these truths if we've come across them for the first time and devoted some deeper study to it. Uh, I pray that there are new things that we learned of you and how we can apply this to our lives. God, I pray that we're all working on the, the vertical, that we're looking to you to help us in these things, God, and that that will help us to determine the degree by which we can give it to others. Just help us continue to study your word faithfully, um, that we would be true to it, and God, that we would just learn and grow from it so that we can operate and exercise that gift that you have given us in this world uh, so that others might want what we have, that we are a fragrant aroma unto Christ that is an attractant thing, Lord, that we are harmonious in our love with one another. And God, that we are quick to call out sin within our own lives first and foremost, that we would also be teaching and admonishing others and help us to know and understand what that looks like more within our church body, that those looking from the outside in can see that we have something different and that they would want what we have. And we are just faithful to share the gospel, to declare your truths. And even in a world that is telling us that Love looks this way and help us to show what love really looks like. God, I thank you just for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray, amen. <laughs>